I'm Julia Gerlach, Executive Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the No-Till Farmer podcast series brought to you today by the Andersons. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank the Andersons for sponsoring today's episode. Take back your nutrients with BioReverse from the Andersons. Stock degradation is an essential part of no-till field management. BioReverse is a robust microbial package designed to significantly reduce residue stubble prior to the next cropping season. The application of BioReverse following harvest released 10 times more nutrients than fields left untreated. With a two-year shelf life and easy handling, BioReverse is ideal for every operation. Visit andersonsplantnutrient.com forward slash BioReverse for more information. Finding ways to improve farm profits without taking on more acres is one of Zach Smith's goals. In fact, the Buffalo Center Iowa Strip Tiller has a name for it, Biohacks. With his mindset of finding natural vegetative solutions for farm problems, he recently started developing a unique autonomous structure he calls the stock cropper that integrates strip cropping with mobile grazing. For this No-Till Farmer podcast, we caught up with Zach to hear about the stock cropper, including why it has an inverted roof, how he envisions utilizing them at production scale, how it can help farmers keep more money in their pockets, the importance of transparency in the consumer relationship, and more. He also explains why he ran a lawnmower over some of his corn acres this spring on purpose. I wanted to talk to you today about the project you're working on called the Stock Cropper. Um, Can you just start by giving us a little bit of background about yourself, where you're located, what your background is, that sort of thing? Yep. So uh, I am a uh, corn and soybean farmer uh, from northern Iowa, right on the Iowa-Minnesota border, straight north of Des Moines. so on top of uh, my farm operation, I, uh, I'm a uh, seed dealer, chemical dealer, uh, fertility uh, consultant for other farmers. So I kind of wear a lot of hats. And I've been really um, interested, though, in conservation ever since I took my dad's farming operation over uh, in 2014 and converted everything to strip till and cover crops. So in northern Iowa, that's not super common to have somebody doing that on 100% of their acres. I think I'm one of two or three in the county that, that do that on everything. So the, that conservation piece has always been there for me and pretty important for my operation. And I've experimented a lot over the years. I've got a, a good friend in Southern Minnesota named Sheldon Stevemer, and he and I have played with uh, different tactics, strip intercropping, uh, twin row 60 inch corn, you know, eight or 10 years ago, we were playing around with a lot of that stuff that's become a lot more in vogue now. And really the pursuit there was like, how do you find a way as relatively small farmers to come up with a unique uh, arrangement so you don't have to scale necessarily in order to grow? Like you just figure out how to do what I've kind of termed in this process, biohacks, to figure out ways to circumnavigate the need to just go find another 500 acres or a thousand acres to farm in order to stay viable. So that was really the spirit that I kind of, I guess, guided us to that. And I'll just fast forward to where kind of the the stock cropper came from about 18 months ago. Corn was 270 a bushel. And we were wondering like, what are we doing? Uh, We're going to lose our, you know, our hind ends this year. And we got to find something different. And so we were looking at, you know, some of these ideas of relay cropping and, uh, you know, some of 
the things that uh, folks like Jason Mock and Lauren Steinloggy and John Coots had been, you know, working on, like, how can we do that in Northern Iowa and Southern Minnesota? And we're looking at those different combinations, but it's tough in that Northern latitude to, to pull that off consistently. And we were really interested in strip intercropping. And so we were trying to find ways of maybe intercropping or re doing relay cropping in between strips of corn. And that's when the idea was, well, what if we, instead of just plants, we did uh, livestock in between. And, they, and the first idea was just a pen of sheep that we would make mobile somehow. And that quickly transformed to, well, you know, they say we don't have enough biodiversity in ag right now. Let's make this uh, just a three ring circus of biodiversity of plants and animals and make it really complicated so that it actually achieves the things that you need to have to check the boxes on actual soil health. And, um, and so that's how this thing kind of kind of came to be in February of uh, 2020 it was myself, uh, Sheldon Stevemer and Lance Peterson were the, the three farmers that kind of brainstormed the idea. It went from whiteboard to working prototype and we've been off to the races ever since with it. So. And so how big is your operation? Did you say? My uh, right now, currently I'm, I farm like 305 acres on the side. So it's basically nights and weekends that, you know, it just keeps me relevant, I think, and grounded in my job on the retail side of stuff. But, uh, but I enjoy it a lot and I really enjoy, I really enjoy the challenges of especially strip tilling cover crops and integrating that stuff and figuring out the good and the bad, you know, with, with that system. So. Yeah. Yeah. And you kind of mentioned that, um, conservation has been a pretty big concern for you. What was behind that for you? I don't know where, I mean, my, my grandfather um, was a biology teacher and a naturalist. And I think he kind of instilled that stuff. He used to make these, uh, at, when he retired, he went around and made like environmental uh, models for like communities to show the impacts of industry. And they were like three-dimensional and showed groundwater and all that stuff. And he got me into that. And actually, when I was in 4-H in middle school, I did a project just around soil conservation. And I made these 3D like railroad models of terraces and grass waterways and no-till and like, you know, putting individual uh, string or pieces of green thread into these these foam to make rows of corn. And it, it was great. Went to the state fair and uh, and I worked and the, at the Leopold Center uh, for Sustainable Ag, my senior year of college. Um, and so there were all these kind of things in my past, you know, that kind of, I think were lingering there. And I wrote some things when I was really young that in hindsight now uh, were really uh, kind of prophetic about where I've ended up. Uh, but, you know, that was all fine and dandy, but I got through college and then I essentially went right into, uh, you know, big agriculture, retail agriculture, and I've been in that machine ever since. And now I'm kind of finding myself, you know, looking for alternatives to that path. And for me, I, the older I get, the more I start thinking about, you know, the future and like the other generations that are going to come along and just the things that I've witnessed in my career and how so many of the systems that we use currently are, have a, uh, you know, deleterious impact on the landscape. And we're not doing enough about that. And, um, you know, we, we only get one set of soils to use and there's a lot of other civilizations have failed. And uh, I just am passionate about <laughs> not not just turning a blind eye and going along with that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. OK, 
So we kind of talked about the stock cropper, but can you just explain it? Can you describe it to people who are yep. listening? Yeah, so the the stock cropper last year and how we have it set up this year is a, a combination of strip intercropping with livestock uh, in between, I guess is how I would say. And the way that we run multiple species of livestock, we had to invent the world's first multi-species, uh, you know, what now has become an autonomous mobile grazing unit. So the idea is, is that we wanted to build a system that minimized inputs, but more biodiversity into the farm and gave the potential for the farmer to keep more money in their pocket at the end of the day. And so the way this worked last year was we had uh, a strip of annual pasture and we had right next to it uh, a strip of corn on each side. And so uh, we moved this mobile barn that had outside grazing areas and then inside protection for the animals for feed and water and shade and uh, you know protection from the elements and predators. Uh, but all the animals had the ability to go outside. They had the ability to come inside into the barn. We built a lot of things into the barn to take advantage of the natural resources around. So we had really good, you know, the ability to open all the, the sides up to get really good air movement. We had one of the coolest things that we've got a lot of compliments on is we actually did an inverted roof so that we could collect rainfall and then have that actually feed the, the watering system. So if we got an inch of rain, that would fill our water tanks so we wouldn't have to bring water out the next day. And then if the rain over, we had more rain than we needed, uh, we were able to pipe that water to the outside road of, of corn that we had to, you know, make better use of that as well. Because for those that aren't familiar with strip intercropping, the biggest advantage is giving the outside uh, row of corn extra sunlight. And if you do that, you can substantially rack your yield uh, up, you know, uh, on, a, on a large magnitude. It's very easy to grow 400 bushel corn if you manage the outside row properly with the extra light. And so with that system, we're, we're amplifying, we're cross leveraging, I say that a lot, but we were cross leveraging the crop off of the fact that we've got this solar corridor where we have shorter species uh, getting grazed in between and uh, so we basically just have the, you know, the strip of corn at high management. We've got the strip of pasture where we moved the barn uh, you know, last year it was 11 feet uh, twice a day. So the animals are always moving into fresh pasture. They're always laying down manure, uh, you know, and so we had four different species last year in the barn. It was sheep and goats. They were our ruminants or our lawnmowers out front. And then the next pen back were, were the pigs and they were kind of our tillage instrument with their noses rooting around. Um, and then we followed up with chicken tractors uh, coming behind and we had two of them. And so it was just kind of this wagon train of, you know, animal diversity and they all had different tasks. You know, I, I kind of compared it to, uh, you know, kind of like a field cultivator for people that do tillage where like, you know, the sheep kind of knock stuff down, the pigs, you know, uh, do a little bit of your tillage and then the chicken tractors are the, the drag or the harrow on the back to kind of smooth things out, except it's not steel doing it, it's just the animals, you know, doing it. And so they're, you know, injecting all of their goodness from their microbiomes and their guts. And we've got a multitude of different microbiomes, uh, gut biomes, I should say, not just, you know, single species like we have in a lot of cases where people just have cattle manure or just have pig manure. There's benefits to having all these things to, to fuel the soil. And, uh, and so then the idea is, is that we, we would graze down this strip. And then if enough time passes, you have, the strip can actually regenerate. So you can come back again, maybe in another 45 or 50 days and hit it again. 
but the idea of the system is that we really wanted to come up with a perfect rotation. So where you, the animals go in year one and the crop is next door, we just simply flip it the next year so that you grow the crop there and then you put the, you know, where the animals went and then put the animals where the crop was. And so, you know, ideally what I'd like to get to the point of in the system is having it where you're growing specifically the, the, the feed stuff needs to feed the animals the following year. And so really the only thing that ever leaves the farm is uh, this high value animal protein that we're creating in this uh, very friendly regenerative health, soil health, whatever you want to call it. Something that's significantly um, lower carbon footprint and greener than what the current system is. Yeah, no, it was really interesting. So the unit that I saw had the barn in the middle and then it had pen on the front and a pen on the back and you had some goats or sheep, I think, in the front. You had some yep. in the back. And so the idea is they just kind of move very slowly down the field, sort of depending on. So the version that you saw this weekend was the, the first iteration of the actual autonomous version, which is solar powered and then and then drives the unit with electric motors and battery packs that are on board with the idea that, you know, every few hours the barn could move uh, like eight feet and that could be programmable. So you wouldn't have to. It would be, you know, the, our idea is, is that we want to have you know, the capacity in your hand with your phone to say, you know, Siri, move my barn or move barn number four, you know, and it would automatically be able to sense where it is. It would pick itself up, move it ahead, set itself back down, guide itself, you know, have, have a lot of, you know, full automation built into it. So you don't have to be out there yanking it with a winch or with a tractor, you know, yourself. It makes it much more scalable, um, you know, on a field level when you, you know, when you have that level of autonomy with it. So, yeah. And so is it guided by GPS or is it some other signal or what? Yeah. So we did not have that in the, the version this weekend. I'm hoping that by uh, my field day here in September that uh, we will have that actually built in. There's a couple different things that we can do. We can do GPS. Uh, we know, we know that from all the other systems in ag. We've also thought about doing feelers um, because there, there may be applications where a straight line, an AB line, uh, like with, you know, what we use in conventional farming may not be appropriate. Like say, if we were trying to move it between grapevines with trellises and we need to have a way for it to feel, and maybe they're not going to be in a nice straight heading line where that lies, or, uh, you know, the idea of maybe running these between solar panels and solar farms, like we've got to have some fail safes other than just GPS to, to kind of guide the thing. So, We've talked. We've had those talks. We we just have not implemented uh, that yet, but we're very we're very close to being able to do that. So, with the version that you watched, the what you didn't see from your vantage point was the, the electrical engineer that did all the work was behind it, and he was actually driving the barn, which is this is my favorite part with a uh, a wireless Xbox controller, and so <laughs> he programmed. Uh, you know, did all the program programming within the, the module so that it would communicate uh, to that controller. So you would hit the, you know, the, the buttons in the corners of the controller and that one would activate their compressor. And then once the compressor was act or, you know, charged, then the other one triggered it to hit the airbags to lift it up. And then, uh, you know, we had two drives on each side. And so the joysticks would just be used for left side, right side. So it was kind of like playing. I mean, for me, I, I was a Nintendo kid growing up. It was pretty cool to have a barn that you could, uh, it's like you're playing Super Mario Brothers or something. So. Yeah, very slowly. Yeah. <laughs> but it is, right. it was steerable then. I mean, yes. Yeah, it was fully steerable. It was just, and, and so as far as like transferring that functionality over to a guidance thing, that's, 
they, they were working on it, but we just ran out of time to, to bring that. Uh, you know, the biggest thing we wanted to show at the field day was that we were close with the, the solar uh, capacities that that worked, that we could have the electric drives and steer itself. And we were able to demonstrate that. And, and the rest of this stuff we're really close on. And, and they're, I think, going to be, you know, layups for us to, to finish out moving forward. So. You mentioned that this would help farmers keep more money in their pockets. Can you just explain that a little bit more? Well, that's the goal uh, here is to, you know, come up with ways uh, so that I, I guess where, where that comes from, in in my opinion, farmers have, have just got, I think, conditioned to exporting value down the road or paying for services or, you know, kind of offloading stuff. And, you know, and that's fine. Like it makes quality of life better in some case, you know, didn't have more time to go to the lake and things like that. But as far as, you know, retaining value on the farm and being efficient like farms used to work like you know being interdependent depending on animals and plants working together and those efficiencies you know i mean every farmer used to have a little bit of livestock and was it convenient you know could you uh, was it easy to go on vacation no but you know you also would grind your own feed you know and people would have feed grinders and so they wouldn't be paying somebody else to do that they'd be doing that themselves and so it's kind of that mindset. Like my dad was very, very um, self-sufficient and uh, he kind of beat that into my head that, you know, you, you figure out ways to do the work yourself and rather than pay somebody else to, to do those things. And that was, so that's kind of the guiding mindset of trying to come up with a system that allows the farmer to minimize cost, but just with arrangement uh, have some efficiencies that allow him to, you know, keep more of the return uh, on the farm. Like, so, the example of the, the barn moving itself with multiple species of animals. Well, we're not going to have much of a fertility bill next year at the co-op, right? Because the animals are doing that and we're going to get to sell those animals on, on top of it. And we didn't have to go and buy 10,000 gallon Hooli uh, manure spreader to achieve that, right? The efficiency is in that. So that's a, that's a savings, you know, so we're lessening the need for equipment. We're lessening the need for inputs and we're, hopefully producing a, a product that we can market at, at a premium based off of the merits of the system. That's the hope anyway, that consumers will see how this is different and, and uh, you know, be willing to pay for that. So, yeah, I mean, the timing of course is going to be completely different because you're talking about fertilizing over the, the length of a season rather than sort of all in a couple of days or so. Or well, and the, and, and the other thing with that that I'd make mention of is that we're, we're fertilizing into a growing uh, a growing crop that's going to recover, you know, now how most fertilizer, not all, but how most fertilizer in my neck of the woods goes on is, you know, people come and pump hog manure at the end of October and, and in, you know, through December, and there's not a living root out there to, you know, hold on to any, you know, nitrogen that's, you know, potentially mobile or, or other nutrients. And, you know, in this system, yeah, we're applying stuff to the surface, but it's, you know, we have a living root that is going to be growing all the way through the season and uh, stabilizing that and then hopefully cycling that back the next year or the following years after back to the crop when we grow crops there again. So in my opinion, it's, you know, I, I don't have the, uh, the quantifiable data to prove it yet, but I, I, I just have a hard time believing that this is not going to be better than that alternative with having a living root being there to take up uh, the manure from the animals as, as the season goes on. Yeah. And then uh, I know everybody could do it differently, but then do you anticipate you would plant green into that pasture basically the following year or would you need to terminate the pasture or what? 
I think at least now with the, the iteration of this rotational idea, we would have to use annual pasture crops. Um, and we would like, to, you know, I, I think ideally, um, I would like to keep a green, you know, crop there all year round. So maybe we come out in the fall and, and establish like a cereal rye that'll overwinter okay. so that we can feed things early in the spring. And then, you know, maybe we, uh, we come out and, you know, we can use herbicide options. I'm not, I haven't, you know, resigned myself to be like, you know, all organic, you know, with this system. Although I think this system could lend itself very, very, very well to switching to organic with the way we have things set up. So, but I'm not, I, I don't adhere to any of the camps necessarily that, uh, that we have to have one way or the other with this, but I think you could either, you know, you could use things like glyphosate to terminate, or you could do roller crimpers, you know, with, like uh, Don's ZRX roller on the planter, you know, to come in and mat stuff down and then, uh, and then have, uh, you know, whatever crop you're going to grow, come up through that. So that would be, yeah, the, the intention is to have a living root year round in the system period. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then uh, I guess I heard you talking about supply chain transparency also. Can you just touch on, on how that plays into that? Well, you know, I, I think, so much of like the current system, everyone is, is so afraid of sharing the optics of like what is going on. And, you know, for me, that's just kind of a silly way to do business, like to have stay out, like caution signs where like you're growing food and it's like, well, why don't we just show what we're doing and like be honest about it. And, um, and that's a two way street. I tell this story a lot uh, when I speak about this, but you know, Consumers want transparency and they want to see how their food's growing. But I think, you know, that, that can be a, a two-way street too, as far as giving, helping educate consumers about the realities of growing food. For instance, you know, they could very much be against antibiotic use in animals. Okay. But imagine you're a, a consumer of stock crop or pork, and we have a camera in every one of our barns that you can log into at any point in the season and see how your specific animal is being treated and handled and grown. But imagine all of a sudden your pig gets a strep infection and it's even being grown outside and fresh air and sunshine, all the things that feel good, but things still happen. And uh, I think if consumers uh, would maybe see their pig that they have prepaid down for the count and say with the option, do you want to give it a shot and have, you know, meat this winter or not, this is, if we can give it a shot or you can watch it die. This is what transparency looks like because this is reality. This is how it really works. And I think there's some opportunities where consumers maybe have some unrealistic expectations about what it is. And I think farmers sometimes, uh, you know, <laughs> dig in too hard defending some of the problems that we have with our system too, are not willing to admit it. And I'm very interested in the space in between and uh, being real and truthful and, uh, about what I'm doing and, uh, and and sharing that with consumers and helping them understand that it's not all fairy tales and lollipops uh, with this stuff too. So that's what I mean about, you know, full supply chain transparency, you know, and the ability, the other thing that's really important is the ability for everybody along the chain to win and not be exploited like we have, I think, in a lot of ways in our current system with you know, the meatpacking industry and, you know, all these things at monster scale and uh, a lot of horrors that come along with that. So. We'll get back to Zach Smith in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, the Andersons, for supporting today's episode. Take back your nutrients with BioReverse from the Andersons. Stock degradation is an essential part of no-till field management. 
BioReverse is a robust microbial package designed to significantly reduce residue stubble prior to the next cropping season. The application of BioReverse following harvest released 10 times more nutrients than fields left untreated. With a two-year shelf life and easy handling, BioReverse is ideal for every operation. Visit andersonsplantnutrient.com forward slash BioReverse for more information. Now let's get back to Zach Smith as he shares more details about the stock cropper. I know that you mentioned you'd be rolling these out probably for high value crops to begin with and eventually making your way into row cropping. Do you want to just talk about that? Yeah. So, I mean, when we came out with this idea, we wanted to, we wanted to produce a system immediately for farmers to use, but the problem, you know, that, uh, that I've really, I've had a lot of people challenge me on and they're right. Like we don't have a system currently for farmers just to produce 400 pigs, you know, in a, on a farm like this and then take them somewhere and then have a really, that those places just don't exist right now, you know, cause everything's gone to the vertical integrator path. We don't have a lot of small, you know, regional processors as options for that. And so we need to, I, I think we need to show that there's a system that this could maybe work with and then hopefully bring along, there's a ton of interest. I mean, you, you know, Governor Vilsack or uh, Secretary Vilsack, you know, just announced uh, this big investment, I think uh, $500 million. I think it was like two weeks ago today that that got announced for uh, investment in, you know, small and re- regional processing facilities and uh, helping fund that stuff. And it's going to take a few years of those things getting up and running. There's all sorts of new butcher shops that have opened in Iowa this this year, and that's great. But, you know, we need places that have more kill capacity than like 30 or 50 head a week, you know. Um, so it's going to take time for that to happen. Okay. And so in the meanwhile, what I'd like to focus is, as far as getting our company off the ground is uh, you know, finding ways to sell versions of this barn to consumers that want to grow their own meats on their own property, want to manage, you know, maybe instead of building a bunch of fence or, you know, barns or permanent infrastructure, they can just let this thing go out and back and forth like an electronic Roomba or, a, you know, a, a vegetative Roomba in their yard and, uh, you know, produce protein. And then instead of trying to market 300 pigs, maybe they just have two or three that they grew and they can find butcher slots you know, with their local butcher to do that. And so it makes it a lot more accessible for people to participate in it. And that's one of the things too, for me is like, I'm, I'm passionate. I love raising meat. I love butchering my own meat. I think it's something that, you know, everyone used to do a long time ago. And uh, um, the more people, especially in urban areas or suburban areas, I think there's a, there's a want for things that are real, especially like after COVID, uh, being connected to food, you know, where your food comes from and having more control over that. And I think that's something that I want to hit on real hard and find people in those areas that are willing to do that. And then also you mentioned the high value crops, like um, I'm really interested in trying to get this into vineyards and orchards, places where they need to manage, you know, land in between where the crop is. And a lot of times they have to do that with mowing or spraying or uh, whatever else. So I, you know, imagine the system where these stock cropper barns could go in between, graze, fertilize, you know, the, the vine crops or the tree crops or whatever with uh, doing that. Designing systems so the animals can't get into the crop, you know, because they're high value. You don't want your, your sheep, you know, climbing up and eating all the grapes off the vines. So you've got to devise something to make that happen. But um, I, think, I think there's a tremendous opportunity for then those businesses to add other revenue streams with, you know, intelligent 
uh, livestock placement on those farms and, you know, agritourism value with people being able to come out and see it, you know, while, you know, their favorite uh, wine is being grown, they, they can see their chicken, you know, being grown as well at the same time. So, um, that's, that's at least what I'm thinking right now, you know, I'm being an entrepreneur with this thing. I've pivoted about 1400 times in the last, uh, 18 months, but, uh, that's kind of the, the current path with the idea that we can eventually get back and have enough scale to manufacture at a price point where I think it could work. And hopefully then the processing capacity will have some hope for us to, you know, start to have farm operations, maybe start to scale this up, potentially forming a cooperative brand to market through so that others, you know, similar to like if for folks that are familiar, like with the Nyman Ranch type model of pork uh, and sheep production that they had where list of standards, this is what it is all the farm, you know, farmers won't be on their own to try to, you know, figure all those things out. We would have kind of a, a singular network to, to communicate the story, have transparency still back to the farm, but to make it so that we, we could have a brand where the farmer could still retain a lot of the value and be rewarded for what they're doing. And so just going back to uh, having this in a row cropping situation, the strip cropping, how many would a farmer need? And then what happens at the end of the row when it gets to the end of the row? Do you need to truck it somewhere else then or what? Yep. So uh, one of the things I worked on last year about this time actually was I wanted to come up with how does this look uh, like on, in Iowa, you know, most of our fields, at least here locally are pretty square. So how does this look on an 80 acre farm or a quarter section, 160 acres? And so the, the schematic I came up with is uh, that a barn is designed to uh, essentially occupy an acre of land and, you know, over the course of a year. And, uh, and so in doing that, uh, what I came up with on an 80 acre parcel, we would divide that into three subsections uh, where we would have three different blocks of barns running in rotation and we would have alleyways in between for turning the barns. So to your question is what happens? We have to have a space at the end, you know, for it to, to wheel around and, and come back. And so we would have, uh, you know, these, these green spaces in between the strips of the intercropping where we could, you know, maybe have that fenced and have, uh, you know, cattle grazing, uh, you know, on, on that piece as well to make use of those acres. But in, in my mind, then we would have on an 80 acre piece, we would have about 30 acres of barns. So 30 barns on an 80 acre field, 30 acres of strip intercropping. Okay. And then, you know, roughly 20, 20 acres in between of alleyways, uh, you know, for, for turning around on the ends and then room for having, uh, you know, the cattle component uh, in the system as well. And I'm sort of envisioning this taking care of a lot of weed issues and all of that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, right now I've got lamb squirter in my pasture strips that's waist high and starting to seed out and, you know, the animals are just going to take care of it <laughs> yeah. and there, there won't be anything left. And, uh, um, you know, it's, it's as somebody that spent their life in crop protection and like selling herbicides and like being really good at finding solutions synthetically, it's really, you kind of really feel stupid when what you've been doing, when you just see an animal just annihilate that. And it's like, well, there's another way to maybe do this, you know, uh, but you got to be kind of crazy enough to, to try something like this to pull up. And it's not that it's going to be perfect, you know, because uh, it's all about timing. But I think, I mean, the thing I've learned is that there's, there's solutions to do all these things. If you're willing to kind of put yourself out there and take a chance, be willing to learn and adapt. And 
I mean, weeds you bring up, but I mean, weeds are going to be a major problem for agriculture moving forward with all the failures and herbicide resistance and stuff that I deal with every day. And, and I think we're going to have to be looking at all tools, both chemical and, you know, potentially biological in the future uh, to solve this stuff. So, yeah, I guess what, where my mind was going with this was all of the passes in between planting and harvest. There's herbicides and there's nutrients and I'm just sort of wondering how much of that gets cut back if, if you're in this kind of system. Yeah. I mean, you know, with the the crop in between, you know, I don't know that you would, I mean, you're still going to need to plant, you know, you're still going to need to, uh, uh, either, you know, cultivate if you're organic or, you know, do make some sort of herbicide pass, you're still likely going to, uh, like for corn, need some sort of additional nitrogen um, supplement because you're probably not going to have enough nitrogen if you're trying to maximize production on the corn crop there. But you would minimize that, I think, significantly um, from the calculations on the manure estimates that we had on what we were putting out. I, I think there's a lot of you know, a lot of potential to significantly minimize manure investment or the nitrogen investment in there. And then, you know, the, the other benefit is, you know, you're not, you know, you wouldn't be planning on, you know, making a bunch of extra tillage passes, you know, in the fall um, and saving on all that stuff to uh, try to grow the crop again the next year. And, you know, last year where I did this and now looking at where I'm growing the crop this year, it's uh, it's a sub- very substantial difference uh, in the size of the corn where the barn went last year versus where it's uh, corn on corn again this year. It's probably, the corn's probably two foot taller and three shades of green darker. And it's just, it's since, since planting and, and emergence, that stuff has just had a different gear from the beginning. I don't, I don't know what it is necessarily because everything was treated the same. It was all fertilized, planted the same, but uh, there's something about the, the energy that was, you know, left in that soil from that system going over it. It's been explosive all year long. But you didn't soil test that to to see the difference. I didn't last year, no. But that's one thing I want to go out and do uh, this. Uh, and I could still do it right now. I'd like to go across the strips and take tests just to see what the difference is with a monocrop corn crop planted across those different management systems uh, now. So that's, that is something I'm probably going to do in the next week here to try to have for information for my field day, you know, in uh, five or six weeks here. And so you are having these manufactured at Dawn Equipment's new manufacturing facility in Milwaukee. So why did you choose that? I knew last year we needed to find, I needed to find somebody to to help me uh, design several different iterations of this. And I needed somebody to help me manufacture it. And Jason Mock, I had known Joe Bassett before, but Jason Mock uh, had encouraged uh, me to get together with him. And it was really interesting because Joe gave a speech two weeks before the stock cropper idea was born in Berlin, Germany, and talking about an alternative future in agriculture and vision. And it, like in hindsight, it's almost alarming how eerily similar that speech was. And and I had not seen that when we came up with the stock cropper, but I saw it about two weeks after, and I kind of had this thought in the back of my head. This is this is one of the only other people in agriculture at like at that level, you know, being a major you know president CEO of a major manufacturing company that is talking and thinking anything like I am. And this is somebody I need to sit down with. And so we we had an initial meeting in January and it went really well. And Joe very quickly got it and saw it and. Because not everybody just sees this. I don't think it's, it, it takes a special eye, I think, to unlock what is possible with this. But he got it instantly. And 
his team was excited about it. And it was a really easy decision for me to say, like, I can get design, engineering, manufacturing. He's got a huge new, you know, facility. This is going to be the marriage. Uh, and then how I move ahead with moving this thing forward. And it's been, been great. You know, his team has been awesome. He's, they all, they're all excited about it and they get it. And uh, I just, I, I couldn't be happier with how well this has ended up, uh, you know, with a company that's only you know, less than 18 months old. So it's st- still in prototype form. We're not ready yet with a commercial release. I'm going as fast as I can, but we are adamant that we want to make sure that we get something that is going to work well for people. And we're very happy with the, the result of last weekend with that debut. We have a few small tweaks we're going to make and then bring that back to my farm in Iowa here in the middle of August and uh, and then observe and see what we need to do from there. But I'm 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 very hopeful that sometime in the next year we will have a commercial availability of some iteration of the barn, at least for people that are interested. So. Okay, I'm very curious. Um, what were a couple of the things that didn't work to your liking? Well, the so at the at the field day we had a really really wet situation, and uh, so the thing that we learned right away is uh, the tires that we had on were not big enough and didn't have enough footprint. They sunk into the ground, and so the barn was actually bottoming out uh, because of that, not having enough clearance. And so we could increase the clearance with the airbags or the ability to lift everything up higher. So if that happens, you know, because the reality is, is you've got to be able to work in all conditions, you know, like when it rains, you got to have a system that's going to be able to move. And uh, when you have good soil health and structure, that makes it a lot simpler to do when you have living roots underneath and being uh, versus having stuff that's intensely tilled and no soil structure. It's a lot, you're not going to make a barn. You're, you're going to stuck stick barns in situations like that. So it's going to be important to have something though, regardless, even with good soil structure that is going to support and be able to move when things are, are wet or have that flexibility around varying conditions. And so, uh, we knew that going in and we're, we're close. We were going to make a couple tweaks there. Overall, though, that was, I mean, those were really the only couple things we've got to, you know, like I talked about before, that we have to figure out the, the steering system, um, you know, but, but I think that's close. I'm not really too concerned. I think, I think as long as we can figure out how to ensure that we have enough power uh, to, you know, navigate slopes and traction and the ability not to, to get stuck in soft soils, um, I feel, other than that, like, like uh, Joe had said in kind of his post interview about the, I mean, way more things went right uh, than went wrong. And, and that was, that was a really good feeling. I came, I came home feeling really, really good from Indiana about what their team had pulled off for me. So. Well, it was a really neat system and um, can't wait to see how, how it plays out in the coming months. Uh, Do you have any other thoughts about it that I didn't ask about that you want to share? I guess the only thing I would say, uh, you know, in closing is that if folks want to follow along uh, with what I'm doing, uh, probably the best way to do it is to get on YouTube and search for the stock cropper, S-T-O-C-K, like livestock. And, uh, you know, I try to put out content every week to kind of share with the good and the bad of what I'm learning. Again, being transparent because this is not a perfect system, um, but it's an exciting system and I want to share kind of the journey. Um, along the way. So, uh, so we're on YouTube and then uh, we're also on Facebook and Instagram and all those platforms, but YouTube is where I, I do most of my stuff. And uh, uh, if you're interested in this, you know, uh, tune in on that and don't hesitate to, to reach out and contact me. I love talking to people. There's, 
a lot of people have had really good ideas and suggestions about, you know, things that they see or what they want. And I'd, I'd love hearing all that stuff from people because we know down the road, everyone is, it's very obvious to me, everyone is going to have a different want or need for what this thing does. And we are going to have to, in my mind, design this to be very much modular where we have maybe a, a central core uh, barn with the technology on board to move and water and feed but we would have different attachments because some people are going to want chickens and some people are going to want pigs and some people are going to want a cow and some, maybe some people want a hutch of meat rabbits trailing behind. So we're going to have to figure out ways to give people the ability to grow what they want, where they want to grow it and figure out how to deliver that. And that's really what I'm going to be focused on moving forward here. So. Yeah. Okay. And I think one thing I forgot to ask about was sort of the size of it, because I think the one that I saw was on the small side, but you have other sizes or you will have other sizes. So the the dimension of the barn last year, I'll start there. It was uh, 33 foot long by 18 feet wide. And that 33 feet was divided into 11, or 11 foot segments, three of them. So it was 11 feet of forward grazing, 11 feet of enclosed barn and 11 feet trailing of uh, outdoor grazing for the pigs. And so, uh, so that was last year's now with everything else, I've gone to uh, 24 foot long barn. So eight foot increments. And, uh, but now we'll have, we have a 30 foot wide barn that we call that one, the max nine. It's ridiculously huge. Um, but that's where we have our cattle and pigs in for the bigger animals. We have our same 20 foot barn from last year. And then we will have the, the new Dawn barn here by the middle of August. We have a small kind of temporary barn that's filling that lane right now that's 10 foot wide going between four rows or 120 inches in between intercropped corn. Um, but that's, and the whole purpose of what we are doing at our demo site near Buffalo Center, Iowa, is we wanna show these different scaled in, you know, iterations with different types of livestock and how that, how they all will work and maybe, maybe not work because uh, there might be some things that it just doesn't work or make sense to do this with. But that's really the, the idea is showing like maybe full field scale production down to something that could go in somebody's acreage or like in a vineyard and kind of show the breadth of what may be possible with this type of system. Well, I appreciate hearing all about this. Do you have a few more minutes that I could just ask you about your strip till operation? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay. Tell me about what you're doing strip till wise. You're doing corn and soybeans. Yeah, corn and soybeans. Uh, sometimes uh, I've done corn on corn uh, quite a few times and not had any problem with that. Um, I, I, start, I started strip tilling in the fall of 2011. I bought, I have a Krauss Gladiator uh, that I bought and has been a good machine for me. And I pull a Montague uh, six ton uh, twin bin fertilizer cart and uh, variable rate uh, my P and K on in the fall uh, with dry. Uh, fertilizer and then come back in the spring and just plant into stale strips from the fall uh, with my planter and I uh, I run um, uh, liquid nitrogen off the back of the planter um, and then kind of tuck that in with drag chains and uh, um, yeah and that's that's kind of that's that's all I do other than you know spray some couple passes of herbicide and combine and it's been um, it's been a very very good thing to make that conversion, uh, especially when I did a long time ago. And it takes it took you know four or five years to see start to see some of the benefits soil wise, and then just to get confidence in what you were doing. 
Um, but yeah, I would, I would never go back or change anything that I'm doing right now. Thanks to Zach Smith for this conversation about combining strip cropping and mobile grazing with the stock cropper. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, The Andersons, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessitermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our no-till insider daily and weekly email updates and dryland no-tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with Farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Executive Editor Julia Gerlach. Thanks for tuning in.